I grew up, which is wild to think about now because I'm not a, uh, not a car person by any means. And not even like I don't, I don't like appreciate cars because I really, I just, I, it, I don't care about cars. Uh, I, I don't work on my own cars. I, it's not that I don't. I can't work on my own cars. Um, but what's wild to me is I grew up, and some of you will be able to resonate with this, I grew up in a proud Ford family. Any, any other built Ford tough? No? Okay, yeah, Stacy gets it, yeah. Proud Ford family. Oh, your dad, you, okay. Yeah, yeah same, same here. Um, and what's wild to me is as I've moved into adulthood, um, when, when it's come time for Amanda and I to look for cars, uh, for some reason my first stop is always like Fords. Now my dad was a Ford guy because ever since he, you guys have met dad, his Gary, uh, grew up on a farm, uh, grew up farming, grew up like welding, doing all the, doing all the like manly man stuff. And uh, then when it came time for him to fix his vehicles or change out brake pads, he, he, he just at the beginning, like that was one of his first vehicles, I assume, because my grandpa Chapel was a Ford guy. And uh, when it came time for him to buy a car because he wanted to be able to work on his own car, he was like, I'll just buy Fords because Fords is what I know. And, and it has gone, uh, has proliferated down into our family. We're like, we're a proud Ford family for no other reason than we're a proud Ford family. I'm not doing work on my own car. Uh, I'm not, I, I can't. I'm physically unable. Uh, and it is so fascinating to me how stuff like this can then just seep down into our daily uh, lives. Uh, for example, like how much stuff do you do in your day? That's like fine stuff, but you do it for no other reason than like you've just always done it. It's always existed. I uh, found a video this week that I think sums up the uh, National Geographic did an experiment about social conditioning. And uh, this video, I think, summed up uh, what social conditioning is and how it kind of plays some tricks on us really, really well. So leading into it, it's going to jump, jump right into it. But here's what I want you to know. Um, uh, the lady in the purple that you're going to see is uh, not an actor, Okay. She, she's going in thinking she's getting a free eye exam. Everyone else in the, at the beginning of the video is a paid actor, okay? And they're going to hear a beep, and then everyone's going to stand up, and the one lady that's not a paid actor is going to look around, and she's going to eventually stand up, and we're going to see what happens over the course of it. So lady in the purple that walks in, not a paid actor. Everyone else at the beginning is a paid actor. Check out what happens. sound of this tone simply because everyone else is you might be thinking you'd never go along with this or would you after just three beeps and without knowing why she's doing it this woman is now conforming perfectly to the group But what happens if we take the group away? Elaine, please. 
Okay, now she's alone. The crowd is gone, and nobody is watching her, except our hidden cameras. What do you think she'll do? She's now conforming to the rules of the group without them even being there. Now, watch what happens when we introduce another outsider who doesn't know the rules. Have a seat, and they'll be out in just a couple minutes. Great, thanks. thanks so much. Think she'll teach the new guy what to do? We kept the cameras rolling as more unsuspecting patients arrived. And slowly but surely, what began as a random rule for this woman has now become the social norm for everyone in this waiting room. When I saw everybody stand up, I felt like I needed to join them. Otherwise, I'm like excluded. Once I decided to go with it, then I felt much more comfortable. Conformity is how we become socialized, but it can also cause us to develop bad habits or repeat past wrongs. And it's why even this rebel, who wasn't standing for any of this nonsense, eventually joined the ranks. I was telling Matt, I'd like to think, like, I've got a strong resolve. I'm, I'm no sheep. But no, I would have. I don't like being left out. Uh, here's what I'm getting at this morning. Okay, I don't think it's helpful to exist in a space of necessarily constant examination of beliefs, uh, because like there's some stuff that we can have a firm foundations on. But I think it's a helpful process for us to every once in a while and every so often, with some regularity, uh, engage in a process of examination to go. Is what I'm holding on to as my identity as a Jesus follower? Is what I'm holding on to as right theology? Is what I'm holding on to of my view of who God is? Is that a, a healthy view? Is that moving me towards wholeness and towards goodness and towards God? Or, or is it moving me away from those things and, and building more walls and barriers? I think uh, in the past several years, words like deconstruction have gotten thrown around, and I think it makes people like us really like shaking our boots of like, oh, someone's undergoing a process of deconstruction. And I get it. That's a loaded word, uh, especially with how a lot of people have used it. But I don't think necessarily the process whole cloth is, is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a good thing for us to examine and go, what do I believe and why do I believe it? Do I believe that something is a sin uh, because uh, the Bible says it's a sin or do I believe that something is a sin uh, because it's like a, a social condition that my parents taught me and, and it's not really like, uh, like cleanliness is ne next to godliness. That's not a thing, okay? 
Sure, cleanliness is a good thing. It's not a thing, though. And so it's helpful for us to every once in a while examine what we believe and to say, uh, is, is this honoring to God and is this reflective of who God is and how he's redeeming the world? And we find in Acts 15 uh, a fairly similar situation where the church is having to examine uh, some teaching from some people and go, is what this is proliferating? Is this what this is uh, saying? Is this true to who God is and how he's working? And we see the situation set up uh, in the first verse of Acts 15. It says, certain people came down from Judea and Antioch and were teaching the believers, and here's what they were teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Now, for those of us, uh, just a kind of a quick refresher course for us. Circumcision, uh, which I'm not going to delve into the specifics of, uh, but circumcision was given to the people of Israel as an outward sign, a covenant uh, that like, that, that this, this means something. We're engaging in something here, in a covenantal relationship between the people of Israel and between God, and we're going to set ourselves apart so that, um, that when other people see us, we're, we're saying we're, we're a different people. We're set apart for God's purposes. So it was a good thing. Circumcision was not a bad thing by any means. Um, but then Jesus, if you'll remember, every time we take communion, um, this is something that I say to us uh, in quoting Paul and uh, in, in quoting Jesus. Um, he says uh, in the cup that we take, this is the cup of the new covenant, of the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, that old covenant was good and it's pointing towards me and now I'm giving you a new covenant. And so it was a good thing. It wasn't a wrong thing. Circumcision isn't sinful or wrong. In fact, it was very holy to engage in that, but Jesus said, I'm giving you a new covenant. And, and so the church, uh, there's this group inside the church that's teaching, unless you still engage in the act of circumcision, you can't be saved. You can't receive the gospel. You can't come into the saving work of Jesus. Now, this is problematic because if you remember, circumcision was a sign for the Jewish people, not the Gentiles. And there's a bunch of Gentiles who, over the last several chapters in the book of Acts, are coming to a saving faith in who Jesus is. There's a bunch of Gentiles, uh, started with Cornelius in chapter 10, wherever we were, starts with Cornelius, and uh, a bunch of Gentiles are, are going, yes, I want to say yes to this. Now, that's a pretty big roadblock in the way of like, yes, I want to commit myself to the way of Jesus. I want to commit myself to following Jesus. And they're like, great. There's just one thing in the way. That's, that's problematic because the Gentile, it's, it's pushing Gentiles away who would otherwise go, no, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a part of the way of Jesus. And so the church gathers together, and they try and hash this thing out. Some people are... Um, are arguing that, yes, the Gentiles need to get circumcised if they're going to be saved. Some people are saying that's not a thing. And we're going to catch up in the conversation in Acts chapter 15. Uh, let's start in verse, <coughs> let's start in verse 7. Okay, Acts chapter 15, verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, 
you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. He's talking about uh, his interaction with Cornelius. Peter is reminded, nothing I made is unclean. God tells him that. And Peter goes, okay, yeah, gospel is for the Gentiles. And God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try and test God by putting on the necks of a Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. It says the whole assembly became silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose people for his name from the Gentiles. And the words of the prophets from the Old Testament are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. And the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. The rest of mankind is getting on, going on to say, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does all these things, things known from long ago. And here's what he finishes with. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I think there's a couple things from this story that are pertinent for us to look at. And the first thing is this the good news of God's kingdom is available to all people. Some of the discussion that we see taking place here in Acts 15 is focused on the fact that the gospel and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, had been, uh, uh, been bearing much fruit in the Gentile context, meaning God was actively working and redeeming and drawing people unto himself, and, and there was much fruit happening. Like, there was really good progress being made. Cornelius is like, yes, I want uh, to say yes to this, and then Gentile after Gentile after Gentile after Gentile, Paul and Barnabas as they uh, shared in here, um, shared stories of how the Spirit was working through signs and wonders in the Gentile community. There's no favoritism in God's camp. And we have to remind ourselves often, I have to remind myself often, that I, that you were saved by grace. Not by our own doing, but sometimes we like to be the gatekeepers of God's grace. Once we're recipients of it, we then put on the sash uh, of gatekeeper. And we tend to operate, here's what I see happening a lot, we tend to operate with a scarcity mindset as opposed to a, a mindset of abundance. And a scarcity mentality says that there won't be enough to go around, and so we're going to hoard, we're going to get what's ours, and we're going to take it in, and we're going to make sure that nobody else uh, can, can uh, receive those things. And again, we're good, holy Christian people. We never say these things. We never say we're hoarders of God's grace and we don't want other people in, but uh, we act that way with how we engage with others. 
And here's how it plays itself out in our relationship with God. We, we operate under the assumption that there's only so much of God's grace to go around. And so we assume, okay, well, I've been a recipient of God's grace. And I know some people in my family have. And so he must be running out. And so let's not really take it to other people. This is, let's just kind of keep this as a, as a you and me sort of thing. And we act like we could lose it, God's grace, and so we don't extend that same grace to others. Maybe it's people who are in a different theological camp than you. There's like distinctive beliefs. You name the spectrum, and you're like, I kind of fall on this side, and they kind of fall on this side, and, and I'm, I don't really see a way for them to come to my side, so I don't, I don't think God's grace is for them. We operate under the assumption that our way is the right way. And if they could just come to see things from your point of view, that, yeah, God, God would uh, give them his grace. Maybe it's someone who is yet to say yes to a life of following Jesus, and you're like, oh, man, they are just past it. Their lifestyle, their decisions, the way they talk, the way they think, the way they dress, the way they act, the people they hang out with, they are just beyond God's grace. I think both of these, whether it's people who are like in the faith family but a different theological persuasion or people outside of the faith family that you're like, I don't see a way for them to ever come to a saving grace. I think what it comes down to uh, is pride. Again, we operate under the assumption that our way is the right way and, and we say, well, they're not in my way so it can't be the right way. But are we humble enough to say, Listen, here's my best go at what it means to follow Jesus. Here's the best that I can come up with for, from my life experience or from Scripture and the Spirit speaking to me. Here's the best that I can do. And some people might come to some different conclusions, but uh, here's, here's the best of what I have to offer. And I'm going to trust that God is big enough to handle all the gaps between here and there. God's grace is available to all people. Verse 8 um, uh, this is Peter talking. He says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted by them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Here he's talking about the Gentiles. Uh, but my question for you is this. We don't, get to, we don't get to pick who the Spirit is given to. The Spirit is, is given to those who have said yes to a life of faith and those who are following and pursuing in the way of Jesus. And so my question for you is this. Are you comfortable with the fact that we're going to get to eternity? And there's going to be people who are just different than us. There's some, there's some theological distinctives that I hold that I wouldn't hold them if I didn't think it was my best go at it. Like if I didn't think like, okay, this is what I see in scripture. There's some distinctives that I hold. Uh, but heaven forbid I ever get to the place of going, no, I am uh, totally right in every circumstance, and, and here's what eternity, here's what eternity with God is going to look like. Everyone is going to have the exact same theological leanings as me. Goodness. Oh, God bore witness to this by the fact that he's giving, he's actively giving the spirit to people who are just different than me and just different than you. They go on to say in verse 11, like, should we put this weight on them? And he says, no, we believe it's through the grace of Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Through the grace of Jesus that we're saved. Not through things we do, but through God's grace. 
Not through right belief, not through proper theology, not through works or actions, but through God's grace. I think a good example of this, Brent uh, shared with me on uh, Facebook a while ago this video. Uh, um, Maybe it was Alistair Begg, I don't remember who it was. But he's preaching, and he was talking about what the thief on the cross does to our theology. I think I've talked about this a little bit before. Uh, But he was talking about this idea of like, the thief on the cross is like, there's really no moment of conversion. There's really no like articulation of perfect theology. There's really no articulation of really any theology. It's just like, yeah, that guy, and, and the, the whole story goes like, he's going to get uh, to heaven's gates, and they're going to be like, all right, well, on what merit do you have to get in? And the, the thief's whole case is, that guy said I could come. Jesus said I could be here. And, and he goes on to, to joke like, well, tell me what your position is on uh, the, the several views of atonement. Like, what, where do you fall on that? Are you Arminian? Are you Calvinist? Are you egalitarian? Are you complementarian? Like, where, tell me where you fall on all these theological spectrums. And, and, and the guy's like, no, I don't think you understand. Jesus said I could be here. And at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, that's, that's our case. That's all we have to plead. We don't have anything that we can muster up. There's nothing that we can say, here's my resume that that I have to make a case before God. All we have is that Jesus said we could. That the work of Jesus is sufficient for us. It's enough. And we don't have to have anything else. All we have to have is that. And so if you... Uh, Ephesians says this, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith in this, not from yourself. It's a gift from God, a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. And the more that that truth can sink deep down into who we are, deep down into our souls, here's what I find. The more that that sinks down into us, the more that we then uh, begin to offer that to others. That like, no, we disagree on several things, but man, God's grace is so evident in their lives. The spirit has been given to them just as it's been given to me, and God is moving, and God is working so we can be in friendship, and we can be in community with them because God is with them. God's salvation is available to all people. We don't get to be, we don't get to be fence makers, okay? That's not, that's not our role. <clears throat> it's not by observance of the law. It's not by correct theology. It's not by anything we can do. It's by God's grace that we get access to God. But this isn't just a begrudging acceptance where it's like, yeah, they have access to God's grace. I don't really want them to, but God says I have to, and I'll tolerate them. No, it's not a begrudging acceptance, uh, because here's the second thing. So thing number one uh, is that God's grace is available to everybody. Real easy. You can have it, I can have it, someone out there can have it. It's available to everybody. (laughs) Thing number two is we should be making every effort to build bridges, not fences. Our job as Jesus followers is to build build bridges, not fences. Uh, Verse 19 I think it's James. There's a lot of interactions here, but he says this. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. 
We shouldn't make it difficult. And I think I, I'll raise my hand. Uh, first and foremost, uh, people who get freaked out by stuff like this. Because I'm like, it's like, there, James, there are some standards, probably. Like, like, we do need to have some structure of what this looks like. And, and uh, we get really, I think we get really antsy about stuff like this. Uh, but I don't think it's as, as if the apostles are saying that there's no standards whatsoever to come into God's kingdom. And there's no standards whatsoever for what your life should look like when you come into God's kingdom. In fact, if you go on to verse uh, 20 and 21, and then the, uh, a good chunk of the rest of the chapter, what happens is they're like, well, there's a couple things we should probably address. Like, let's, let's tell them, don't worry, about, um, don't worry about circumcision. We're not going to put that yoke on you to bear. But, like, just be careful about your public appearance. Don't, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols uh, and maintain, like, a biblical God-honoring sexual ethic. Um, but, like, so, so the apostles aren't foregoing standards altogether. They're just being really careful about what it means to, uh, to draw those boundary lines. And I think the thing that stood out to me in verse 19 is the fact that James is like, no, we should, we should not be making this difficult. We should be doing our best to make it easy. I had a professor in, in college one time. Um, he was my, uh, Dr. Russell Heising, and uh, he was my pastoral ministries professor. And he said all the time in situations that we were talking about, of like, how would you handle this situation? How would you handle this situation in a church? Uh, his line, and it stuck with me over the years, is anytime I have an opportunity to, to choose between judgment and grace or mercy, I just try and always lean on grace and mercy because God's, God's just a much better judge than me. He's so much more different than I am. He's so much more infinite. And so let's lean on the grace as much as possible. Let's be constructing bridges to, 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 be a, to have a winsome uh, attitude. What are walls that I see uh, Christians actively constructing, though? Church attendance. I think we put put a big uh, wall fence on that of like eh, probably outside of God's kingdom. I've been kind of loosey goosey with church attendance. Um, one thing I see a, a lot of times is uh, is the proper pathway to salvation. I wish I, I put that in quotes. Proper pathway to salvation of. There's a moment where you are saved, or are not saved, and then you do X, Y, and Z, and then from this moment, you are saved. Like, did you pray this specific prayer of repentance, and did you walk through the Romans road, and, and did you do all of these things to get this output? I, I see a wall a lot of times, and it's not just one side of the eye. I, I hate that we only have two things, because anytime I talk about one side of the aisle or the other, <laughs> I there's no indictment on where you guys are sitting at all. But maybe it's like, do you vote Republican? Do you vote Democrat? Because that tells me a lot about your faith and your spirituality. And we, we put a lot of stock in that. Maybe it's lifestyle choices. Maybe it's having the perfect theology. And usually what I find is that a perfect theology usually aligns with my theology. We assume we have the perfect one, and it has to align with that. <clears throat> and I think inside of this, as we talk about being bridge builders, inside of this, there's an invitation. Instead of spending all of our time focusing on who's in and who's out, what if instead we focus our time on building discipleship relationships? 
on saying, I'm going to walk with these people or this person for an extended period of time, and I'm going to encourage them to grow in the way of Jesus wherever your starting point is. Got a couple book recommendations this morning. Uh, John Ortberg, Eternity is Now in Session. The whole book is about, um, like, what does it mean to have an in-group, out-group when it comes to faith specifically? And what if instead we viewed it as a tightening spiral uh, to our closeness with Jesus? And yeah, there's uh, like maybe eternity can be right here and now. But here's a quote from this book. Uh, <clears throat> Do you know what never defines the word Christian? The Bible. Literally. It never calls anyone to become a Christian. And it never records anyone becoming a Christian. Even Jesus never uses the word Christian. Jesus never says, here's how to become a Christian. Jesus never describes what a Christian is. Jesus himself, get this, wasn't even a Christian. He was Jewish. And he goes on to say that the word Christian in the New Testament is only used, can anybody guess? How many times? Twice? Three times. Three times, okay? <clears throat> but the word disciple in the New Testament, is used 269 times. And our call, if we go back to, to Matthew 28, our call from Jesus, his last words to us is, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Um, and what is a disciple? It's someone who follows in the way of. Jordan uses language like this all the time. Apprenticing under. Apprenticing after. One time, I was building the table, the desk that's in my office, I was apprenticing under my dad and Ben Cooper, and uh, they taught me about woodworking, which again, I hate, I don't enjoy it, it's not fun for me. I, anything that involves my hands, if it's not golf, throw it out the window. Uh, I, I, ben was uh, telling me though, okay, you need to kind of sand these boards and then we'll glue them up together. And uh, I don't know anything about it. And so he leaves the workshop and leaves me to just sand for a really long time. And so I sand those boards better than you've ever seen them sanded in your life. And I, I mean, they started, I, I think it's a couple inch table. Probably started out as a three inch slab. And by the time I sand, sand a whole inch off of there. I don't know, maybe I'm exaggerating. Then uh, he comes back and he said, Jordan, you sanded this way too far. It's like glass. Like, and I was like, I didn't, I didn't know, Ben. I'm really sorry. And we had so much trouble drilling holes into the side and gluing it together because the wood was so slippery. You couldn't get any grip on it. Uh, I didn't know. It was a mistake I made because I was new to the apprenticing under the way of Ben Cooper and woodworking. So what if instead of who's a Christian, who's not a Christian, where do you fall? What if instead we just give all of our effort to focus on discipleship relationships? Who am I being discipled by and who am I discipling? Because when you're an apprentice, when you're a disciple, there's some inherent assumptions made. Like, you're not going to have it all together. You're going to take a board that's meant to be rough, and you're going to smooth it down to a glass finish. And then you're going to learn, hey, next time you build a table, there will be no next time. 
But next time you build a table, why don't you leave it a little bit rougher? and It'll make the process easier. And I go, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. And then uh, you learn something else along the way. Like, hey, when you're cutting off the end, uh, you got to move your whole body. I think I talked to you, but you can't just pivot and make, a, make an arc on the end of your table. Something I learned. Uh, but there was a process of me learning and growing and developing. And, I mean, you hear about it in a lot of trade industries of people who learn these tricks of the trade and apprentice under because it means this long uh, period of of a long time where you're growing and you're learning, you make mistakes and people are gracious with you. And there's some inherent assumptions, like I said, that over time you develop into maturity. But we begin to have so much more grace for people uh, when we go, you don't have to have it all together right now. We're all on our way. We're all on our way developing into the people that God uh, has asked us to be. But no, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to drop the ball. And it's going to be fine. We're going to have grace on you. God's going to have grace for you. Uh, but what if, what if instead of us putting up walls, we were bridge builders? And this, this goes far beyond we have different theological beliefs, but we both attest to who Jesus is. The, the, I don't think we should make it difficult for the Gentiles trying to turn to Jesus. What if instead we took this, uh, this mentality with our evangelism? And what it meant to engage our neighbor well. Uh, that, that we don't always, I think sometimes I get really worked up um, with my, my evangelism efforts. Because it feels like a kind of an all or nothing sort of thing. Like if I don't, if I don't go up to this person and just lay it out, that, that God won't be honored and they won't be able to turn to Jesus. But what I found is that more fruit has been born for me in the little moments of walking with someone over a long period of time and, and starting at just a really small base level and, and just allowing those conversations to build on one another and say, I'm going to build a bridge. I'm going to find the commonality. A, a common example I give of this is there was a guy in our other town uh, that was a, a Muslim background man. And I went in and I saw him. Uh, he worked at a package store, uh, like, a, like a shipping place. Um, package store has some other connotations too, but he worked at a shipping place. And uh, I'd go in often and I'd drop off packages, uh, selling stuff online, and we'd visit. And <coughs> sweetest guy on the planet, like just so involved in our community. We had great conversations. I remember one time we were having a conversation. He was on the phone with a customer service thing from like UPS, and he was like, uh, why are people so mean, Jordan? Like, I didn't do anything to this customer service person. They're just yelling at me. And I'm like, I'm just trying to get a little bit of help. And it allowed us to have a really good conversation about, well, Q, I, just, I think sometimes uh, people forget. My belief tells me that uh, people are made in God's image and they're image bearers of the divine. And when you remember that, man, it just really kind of defines who you're talking to. And you remember, like, this isn't an enemy across the table. This is someone that God loves. And, and we were able to find some commonality in that. And then we were able to have other conversations that built on top of that. It wasn't an all or nothing thing. We were able to, I was able to build a bridge in that moment. And so uh, finding commonalities that we can go, no, I'm a bridge builder, not a fence builder. I'm not trying to keep people out. I'm actively trying to build bridges to bring people in. Paul was great at this. We saw this last week when he was in Lystra and Derby, uh, and people thought that him and Barnabas were gods. And he was like, no, 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 but God's good, and he gives us rain. And he, he didn't give a whole explanation of the gospel, but what he did do is say, this is who God is, and here's a little, here's a little snippet of who he is. I had a second book recommendation. 
uh, Building Belief by Dr. Chad Meister. Uh, Dr. Meister was uh, one of my professors in my master's program. And the dude is brilliant, but just so kind and approachable and humble. Like he is, whatever you think of like stuffy academia professor, he is all of those things, but none of the like rough edges things. Just so kind, elder in his church, love serving, wonderful guy. Uh, and he wrote uh, this book uh, as he talked about building... Uh, building belief. I was going to say, as he talked about building belief in other people, but that like, we don't need to start necessarily. We always go in with like, do you believe Jesus died for your sins and was risen on the third day as an atoning sacrifice? And, uh, and like, that's a really big chunk to bite off. But what he suggests is doing this. What if instead you start with this? Like you start with the base level. He builds this triangle. You start with the base level of truth. Like, can we know truth? And then you build up to, like, what's your worldview? How do you take in the world around you? And then you build up to theism. Do you believe that that worldview accommodates for a God? And then revelation. How has that God revealed himself to the world? And then you move up to, okay, you believe that God's revealed himself to the world. Is the resurrection plausible to you? And then you move up, and the, the top thing of the pyramid is the gospel. Here's what it means uh, to do the gospel. And, and again, like I said, we think we got to go all the way in. And like, here's what it means to follow the gospel. But what James is saying is, I don't think we should be making it difficult. We got to be making every effort to build bridges to people who are far from God. So two things from this morning. We are saved by grace. It's not grace that you earned. And guess what? It's an infinite grace, so there's plenty to go around. So let's let that sink deep down into our souls. And then the second thing is this, uh, we ought to be active bridge builders. We ought to be active bridge builders where we're not constructing fences, we're not constructing walls, but we are uh, being people who are uh, being loving and being gracious and being kind and saying, okay, what, where can we find common ground here? Where can we find common ground? And, and then how can we take a little bit more ground for the kingdom of God? How can we take a little bit more? So we're going to close our time uh, in worship today. So let me pray for us as we kind of establish these things in our hearts. Jesus, we are so grateful for your grace. We're so grateful. Uh, <laughs> it's a free gift. We didn't do anything to earn it. And, let, and yet you lavish it on us. So God, will you even now establish that in our hearts? So we sing... Uh, praises to you, praises that you're infinitely worthy of. Lord, this, this is just a, a glimmer of what you're worthy of, but it's all we have to offer. <sighs> Be present with us now. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.